Parshas Bereshis ends on a very sour note. Civilization has turned south, <clears throat> and Hashem feels that nothing is left. Noah alone is the human being that Hashem feels <clears throat> is the potential. And Parshas Noah opens up with the words, Eilat told us Noah, these are the generations of Noah. Noah is tzaddik. Noah and Noah alone is the righteous man of his generation. And the story begins very quickly to unfold. Hashem says to Noah that the entire world has become debased. It has to be destroyed, the entire yukum. Not just man, but every animal. Everything in creation has to begin again because man has so defiled, made so everything so spiritually impure that we must begin again. And in fact, Hashem tells Noah, build a teva. Build this teva, you, your wife, your children, your children's wives will be the ones left. You'll go into the teva, gather all of the animals that have not corrupted their nature, gather sufficient food, and you will begin humanity again. On this teva you'll live, everyone else will be destroyed. And what's interesting to note is that Noah goes about exactly that, building the teva. He builds a teva, cuts the wood, planes it, and begins shaping it, and goes through the entire process, building this large teva. It's 300 amas, which means to say it's at least two football fields in size. And he spends years, years building this teva. Then he gathers all the food. Keep in mind, every animal in creation is going to be on this teva. He has to gather enough food for himself, his family, and the animals in creation to live for a year. So he gathers all the food, and then Hashem directs him to gather the animals, the behemoth Tahora, seven by seven, the behemoth Temea, two by two, and all of this Noah engages in. And when it's all done, Hashem says to him, in seven days from now, I'm going to begin the Mabal, and begin bringing the animals onto the Teva. And at that point, Noah does just that. But what's interesting to note is that the Pesach says, Vayavo Noah ubanov ishto neshevanov, Noah, his wife, his children, and his children's wife, came onto the Teva mipnei mehamabul, because of the waters of the Mabul. And the Medrash explains to us, it began raining. Seven days after Hashem told Noah it was going to happen, it began happening exactly as Hashem predicted. But the rain came down in powerful, powerful buckets. And the rain began mounting and mounting. But it wasn't until the water actually got up to the thighs of Noah that he, his wife, his children went onto the Teva. And Rashi brings down the Medrash that explains, Af Noah me ketane emuna. Noah was of those of small of Amuna, Mamin Mamin, he believed and he didn't believe. Shiyavu Hamabul, he didn't fully believe. He believed, but he didn't fully believe, and therefore he didn't go onto the Teva until it was actually forced, until the water began rising. It was only then that Noah entered the Teva because he was Mamin Mamin. he believed and he didn't believe that there was actually going to be a Mabul. And if you think about this Rashi, it should be very difficult to understand. Why? Because we're dealing with a man who just spent 
an incredible amount of time, effort, and energy into building this teva. And this man had to build a teva by hand. And Rashi is bothered by a very particular question. Hashem has many, many ways to save a tzaddik. Why did Hashem trouble this man to, by hand, build this vessel large enough to hold himself and the animals, etc.? And Rashi explains it's for one reason. Because Hashem wanted the Rishayim of the generation, the wicked people of the generation, to see Noah doing this. And they would ask him, what are you doing? And Noah would explain, I'm building a teva because Hashem said He's going to destroy the world. Unless you do tshuva, unless you mend your ways, Hashem will destroy you. And Hashem wanted the generation to see Noah doing that. Why? Because by doing that, they would learn the lesson, they would do tshuva. But what that means is, Noah was engaged in this process in a very noticeable and very clear manner. He didn't do it in hiding. He publicly began cutting the wood, began shaping it, and began forming the vessel. The point of it was to engage people in conversation. And the Medrash tells us that's exactly what happened. People said, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm building this table. Why? Because Hashem is going to destroy the world unless you do tshuva. And these conversations went on day after day after day. So the question is, how is it possible that Noah believed and he didn't believe? What do you mean he, he was engaged in conversation? And constantly engaged in explaining to people that Hashem is going to bring this marble. But to illustrate why this question is so significant, let's focus on a number of other points. Number one, how long did Noah build this teva for? So if you do the math, the actual marble begins in the 600th year of Noah's life. And he began the process in year 480. For 120 years, he was engaged in this public demonstration that Hashem is going to bring a marble. First, he began planting the cedar trees and he would water them. But it wasn't just one tree. Rows and rows of trees in a very clear public way so that everyone should see and everyone should ask, what are you doing? Hashem's going to bring a marble. And he grew these trees for 60 years, 70 years, until they were full, tall trees. And then he cut them, and then he planed the wood, and he laid out the boat, and he and built the, each of the rooms. And everyone saw, everyone was aware, and on a regular basis, Noah was engaged in conversation. So what do you mean he didn't believe? He was acting for 120 years, <clears throat> showing the world, demonstrating it, only doing it so that they should learn the lesson, how is it possible that he didn't believe? But if you'd like to really understand why this question is profound, you have to understand many of the features that were in, Noah was really engaged in. Rabbeinu Machai does the math for us. He says, if you do the measurements of the Teva, 300 amas long, 50 amas wide, 30 amas tall, Let's assume an ama, a cubit, is two feet. The boat is 600 feet long, 100 feet wide, 60 feet tall. Explains Rabbeinu Chai, if you take all the animals in creation, it is not possible that 50 such boats could hold all the animals alive at the time. You have the hippos and rhinos, the large chimpanzees. You have all of these animals, they couldn't possibly fit into such a small boat. The Brang Zoo contains <clears throat> about 4,000 species, 
and it is on some 200 plus acres of land. The teva is way too small. Explains Rabbeinu Mechai that actually what Noah was preparing for was a tremendous miracle. He understood that he had to do as much as he could. He couldn't possibly build a teva large enough to house all the animals in creation. It would be far too much for one man to do. On the other hand, he couldn't just do nothing. He had to do as much as he could in the ways of nature. And then Hashem would take over with a miracle. But that means he understood that this boat was not going to be sufficient for these animals. And he understood that these animals would become miniaturized. He had no problem designing the kinim, designing the separate rooms for a giraffe that's 18 feet tall, even though that part of the boat wouldn't house that size of animal. And he was fully aware of the miracle involved. And yet he engaged in this, and yet Rashi is telling us that he didn't believe. But if you focus on some of the, the details, the question becomes even more difficult. It was in the middle of the day that Hashem forced Noah and his family to go into the Teva. Why the middle of the day? Because the Rishoyim, the wicked people of the generation, said, Noah, if your words come true, and Hashem brings a mabel, we're going to prevent you from getting in that Teva. And on the day when the rains were coming down, there was a ring of animals that surrounded the Teva. But this ring of animals were bears and lions and wild animals. And when the wicked people of the generation attempted to get in, they killed them. And there were people dying left, right, and center because everyone realized that what Noah said then was true. Yet Noah waited. It wasn't enough. But you have to appreciate the amount of miracles that were going on was uncanny. Because Noah was tasked with gathering all the animals alive at the time. Now, if you ask Noah to bring a cow or a zebra, maybe. But you're talking about all of the wild animals, all of the birds, all of the reptiles. He's not a hunter. He's not a man of nature. But more than that, it had to be the animals that were pure, that didn't change their ways, that didn't mate outside of their species. And the Medrash explains to us, it was miraculous. Noah would bring them by the Teva, and only the ones that were pure would go in, but they began gathering. The animals of creation began gathering, and they all came there. So clearly Noah is living with miracles. He's living with miracles, and yet he doesn't believe that Hashem is going to bring a marble. It sounds very difficult to understand. But let's make this question a little bit more profound. You see, Noah is really not given good PR in the Cheder system. Everyone is familiar with the first Rashi, in the Parsha, the Pasuk says, Is Tzadik Tamim Haya He was a perfect man in his generation. And it's a machlokis in the Gemara what that means. Was he perfect in his generation? And in a different generation, he'd be even greater? Meaning, look, he was in a generation of wicked people. And despite the wickedness that he lived amongst, he was a Tzadik. Could you imagine if he was in a greater generation, how much greater it would be? Or maybe it's the opposite maybe only because he lived among such low lives, only therefore he was a tzaddik, but had he lived in a generation of Avram, maybe he would have been a no one. And this is a machlokas. And because of that, people assume Noah was okay. But I'd like to share with you that's patently false. Noah was a tzaddik as described by the Torah. And what that means in plain, simple language is 
He was a man of such spiritual perfection that it's hard to envision. And if you'd like an illustration of his spiritual perfection, number one, he was a Novi. Hashem spoke to him directly. And Novi is a man who reaches level after level after level of totally leaving this world. And when he leaves this world, he becomes so pure that he's able to engage in conversation with Hashem, usually in an altered state of mind, usually in a very, very distorted kind of manner, because a human being would become so overwhelmed. Noah reached Nevoah, where Hashem spoke to him. But not only did he reach Nevoah, if you'd like to appreciate who this man was, Hashem said, it is from you that the entire humanity will begin again. From you and you alone, the entire human race will begin. So here's the question. The man is a tzaddik, according to the Torah. The man is a novi. Hashem speaks to him directly, and Hashem says to him, I am going to destroy the world. And then he engages for 120 years in this vikuach, in this debate with the generation, trying to teach them to do tshuva, how is it possible they, that he didn't believe? But there's one more step that makes it even more telling. And that is, this man, Noah, was a great tzaddik. But if you've read about Gedolim, you know that they grow over the years. So for instance, if you read the stories of Ramosha Feinstein, when he was 15, he was a he was a guttle, tremendous person. But who he was at 15 is no comparison as to who he was at 40. But who he was at 40 is no comparison to the Ramosha Feinstein, who at 80 years of age was the acclaimed leader of the Klyasrol. But here's the problem. Noah wasn't 40 or 60 or 80. Noah was 600 years old. At a tender young age, he reached a level of prophecy, of t- tremendous righteousness. He was a tzaddik, and he spoke to Hashem. And for years and years, decades and decades, and I dare say centuries, he grew and grew and grew. So he got it. If he so clearly understood it, and he stands up to his generation to teach him for 120 years, and engages in this process of building this teva, how is it possible that he believed and he didn't believe. He wasn't quite 100% convinced. And I believe answering this question defines for us what emuna really means and helps us relate to this concept in a very real manner. And to do that, I'd like to ask you a very simple question. That question is, does a malach have bechira? Does a malach have free will? Now, if you went to a cheder, if you went to a day school, you know that a malach, angels don't have free will. Man, Adam, has free will. An angel doesn't have free will. However, that's patently false. It's not true. You'll find many, many situations where malachim made mistakes, they were punished, and they clearly have free will. If you'd like to understand the difference between you and I, Adam, and a malach, it's a very, very different ingredient. It's not free will. It's something much more basic. You see, if it could be when Hashem created man, Hashem had a problem. And that is, how do you take an Hashemah, pure, brilliant, put it into a body and give that person free will? Free will means I could do this, I could not do that. I could choose good, 
I could choose evil. But free will means, by definition, it has to be free. Both possibilities have to be there. I could go left, I could go right, I choose one way, and I'm credited for my choice. But here's the problem. The neshama is brilliant. The neshama sees things, and the neshama understands. The neshama understands that every mitzvah that Hashem gave us is for our benefit. It helps me, shapes me, makes me into what I'll be for eternity, and every avera damages me. Every sin causes me damage, hurt, it ruins my world here and certainly ruins me for the world to come. So here's the problem. How do you take a brilliant neshama, put him into a body and say, here's free will, choose what's right, <clears throat> don't choose what's wrong. You and I would never choose what's wrong. And that's not called free will. That free will is akin to free will to damage yourself. For instance, let's say I pulled out a $100 bill. And I said, I'll bet you this $100 bill that you won't put your hand in a fire for a minute. Do you have free will to put your hand in a fire for a minute? Now, on one hand, I guess you do. You could do it, but you never would. Not for $100, not for 1000 not for $10,000. Why? Because it's self-inflicted damage. It's foolish. You would never do it because it's the height of folly. The problem is that that's not called free will. If Adam sees so clearly that every sin damages me, of course he won't do it, because it's foolish. I don't drink bleach, I don't harm myself. And to create Adam with free will creates a major, major difficulty. How do you take a brilliant neshama and give him the possibility of choosing what's good, choosing what's bad, when everything good helps him and everything bad damages him? And to do that, Hashem didn't just take the neshama and put it into a body. Hashem took the neshama and put it into a body and mixed into that body a separate nefesh bahami, an animal soul. And within me there are two competing voices. And within me there's a brilliant neshama that understands that only wants to do what's right, good and proper. And within me are all of the instincts that you'll find in the animal species, all the desires and all of the natural inclinations. And the I who feel, the I who go about the busyness called life, am ever conflicted. But you see, it's not just a remote sort of conflict. The I who thinks, the I who occupies this body, am enveloped in physicality. And it's like you take a very fine radio receiver and you put it into 20 feet of concrete. You don't hear the signals. You see, I understand things and I don't understand things. I relate to concepts and I don't. And if you'd like to fundamentally understand Bechira, I'll give you a very simple muscle. All you have to do is imagine a young yeshiva guy. Imagine you have a first year, second year base manager guy, and this is the first Purim he decides to get drunk. And then you see him, Moshi. Moshi's 18 years old, and he's out there in the street. Moshi, what are you doing? I'm playing in traffic. And Moshi, you're playing with traffic. You're going to get hit. I know, I'm going to get hit by the car. <laughs> Moshi, you're going to get hit by a car. I know, I'm going to get hit by a car. Crack, smack my back. <laughs> Moshi, you're going to get hit by a car. They'll take you to the hospital. I know, <laughs> they'll take me to the hospital. And then and, and, and they'll put pins in my back when I go through the metal detector. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> now, what's going on here? Moshi clearly understands the consequence. He understands that he might well get hit by a car. He understands that if he does it, his bones are going to get broken. 
they're going to have to put him back together. So why is he doing that? The answer is why she is drunk. And you see, you could be very intelligent, and you could have a brilliant understanding, but when you're drunk, you're drunk. When Hashem took the neshama and put it into a body, what happened is we become drunk with lust, with desire, but just more than anything, with a very, very deep, dark haze that doesn't allow us to see things. So I'll say, oh, Lashon Hara, yeah, it's a big affair, it damages me. Oh, I really shouldn't do that because I'm going to regret it forever. Yeah. And as strange as it sounds, we could act like intelligent, rational, thinking people and yet do things that are so damaging, so self-destructive. And how could it be? The how it could be is because when Hashem took the neshama, Hashem put it into this body, and now I'm covered with layers and layers and layers of physicality. I could say words and not really relate to them. I could think about concepts and they're so foreign, so far away that I don't even feel them. I'm like that drunk yeshiva boy. That is the reality of Bechira. Now man has free will. Why? Because now when I'm tempted to do something, you see, it's not a theoretical temptation. It's not like, hmm, if I do this, it's going to damage me forever. I'll be sullied, I'll be dirtied, I'll be dis- damaged, but I desire doing it. Uh-uh. Now if I desire something, maybe it's not that bad. And who says forever? And besides which, who cares? It really doesn't matter. And now I'm in a state where I really have free will. Because I'm drunk, because I really can't feel things, because I can't relate to the future, because I really can't feel the gravity of my decisions, now I have free will. Why? Because now when I'm tempted, now when I'm involved in things, it's very easy to go left, to go right, because my brilliant neshama, the part of me that clearly understands what the consequences are, is not allowed to think clearly because I'm drunk. And if you'd like to see a powerful illustration of that, I believe that is Noah. As great as Noah was, as much as a tzaddik as he was, as much as Hashem spoke to him directly, he got it and he didn't get it. He understood, he related to it, and yet it wasn't 100% there. And even though he spent 120 years engaged in working on this teva, convincing others about it, it wasn't absolutely clear. And it wasn't until the rains forced him in. And it wasn't until he absolutely had to that he actually entered the teva, because as great a tzaddik as he was, as much as he understood, it wasn't 100% clear, it wasn't fully there. And this concept would be hard to relate to, and even hard to understand the answer for Noah if it weren't for the fact that you and I live this every single day of the year. I'll ask you a very pointed question. Do you daven? You pray. I assume the answer is yes. And what is davening? The answer is davening is speaking to Hashem. Okay, so here's the question. When was the last time that you passed out, that you fainted during davening? Right? When was the last time in the middle of you just fainted from awe? No, probably the answer is not very recently. But why? Speaking to God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. Hashem, the one who created, maintains, orchestrates every action in activity. Hashem has more money than 
than Bill Gates, more powerful than Donald Trump. Hashem is the cre- Hashem is God. How is it possible that I could speak to Hashem, have a conversation, and not faint? The answer is, I get it and I don't get it. And as much as I work on it, and as much as I think about it, it's never quite there. I don't quite get it. And I can tell you from personal experience, there's many, many a time when I'm about to start my Nesrei and I want to say these words. Hashem, I, I apologize. I'm sorry, I, I forgot you were here. What do you mean, I forgot Hashem was here? I work and I think of it. But it's worse than that. I work on davening, I work on <clears throat> concentrating, and I'll be there speaking to Hashem right there, and suddenly a thought comes to my brain, and boom, I'm gone. And I wake up five seconds later, five minutes later, maybe when I take three steps back, but how could that be? I know what I'm doing. I'm speaking to Hashem. I'm <clears throat> I've worked on this for years, and I'm embarrassed to say for decades now. And the answer is that I am guilty of a great, great sin called the sin of being a human being. Because the human being, by definition, means I'm put in this heavy body. I'm put in this heavy body, in this cloak, and I see and I don't see. I recognize things and I don't recognize things. And as much as I realize them, as much as I understand them, I don't feel it. And I could sit there in the middle of Ishmael Esrei and really be speaking to Hashem, and then two seconds later, I'm gone, never to be seen again. And this is something that I'm sorry to say we experience on a regular basis. I'll give you one more example. Everyone is familiar with the concept of life settings. Shem creates a very exact life setting for each person. And if you're not very familiar, I'm sure you've heard it in a number of shmuzim. And if not, read Stop Surviving, Start Living. And you'll see I spend a lot of time working on that. Here's the question. How is it possible that you and I are jealous. How is it possible that when I see somebody who either is a great tzaddik or maybe learns a tremendous, or maybe has a lot of money or a lot of, whatever it may be, how is it possible that I'm jealous? I know Hashem gives exactly the life setting to each person. How is it possible that I want his situation? And the answer is intellectually I can know it, but emotionally I don't feel it. And the great divide, as a result, Salat explains to us, is between the mind and the heart. And this is exactly what Noah was experiencing. And this is the basis of so much of our avodas Hashem. So much of our work is to make real the concept that intellectually we know, but we don't really feel. And so much of the work is to really bring it home. And on the most basic level, let's deal with something called bitachon. All of us have bitachon. I trust Hashem. Absolutely, trust Hashem. Hashem runs the world. And more than that, everything Hashem does is to the best. Everything that Hashem brings is to my best. I got that perfect. I've been thinking about that for years. And all of that is fine and well until a little dog comes chasing me. What happened to my bitachon? What happened to my trusting in Hashem? Or what happens to, listen, Hashem provides. Hashem provides my pranasa. Everything is from Hashem. Everything that Hashem does is to the best. And then I get the call that my business is in big trouble. Or I have a tax bill I can't pay. Or the tuition is dread, fear. What am I to trusting Hashem? And the answer is, that is the great test of a human being. Intellectually, we know things. Intellectually, I know Hashem runs the world. 
But in my emotions, in my reality, I'm a mamin ve'en mamin. And if you'd like to fundamentally understand what life is about, intellectually, we have to work on these concepts. Intellectually, we have to work on understanding how Hashem runs the world. How Hashem is involved in everything. That Hashem is engaged in every activity. Nothing under the sun happens that Hashem doesn't directly orchestrate. And we have to spend a lot of time intellectually understanding that. But then the real work begins on recognizing that emotionally. And when I use the word emotion, I don't mean emotionally. I mean in the inner part of me, getting it. Getting it means feeling it, sensing it, having it be part of my reality. Because concepts up here in my mind are good. But it's in my emotional reality it's in the thick and thin of things. It's really getting it where the action is at. And much of our avoda is in feeling, getting those concepts. And if you like sort of a scorecard, you could be a hundred. If you really work, I believe in our generation, you can become 95, 98, maybe even a hundred intellectually. But I sincerely believe that the average person is probably somewhere around 20% in terms of really feeling it. Because again, look at the tests, the simple tests of life, and ask yourself, if my emuna is so real, if intellectually I get it and I'm a consistent human being, how do you explain my reactions? And if you're not sure that I'm right, I'll give you one final litmus test. Think about the following question for a minute. Have you ever in your life, well, let's be candid here, have you ever in your life gotten angry? Mad, angry, right? Now, if you're like most of us, the answer is yeah. Well, here's the question, how could that be? Don't you believe that Hashem runs the world? Don't you believe that Hashem orchestrates every activity for your good? Don't you believe that it's Hashem's will? How is it possible for you to get angry? And the answer is, that I can intellectually understand things, I could say the words, but darn it, why'd you do that to me? You did that to me. He did it? I thought you told me no human being can harm me, no human being can help me. Why am I angry at him? Because he did that. What do you mean he did it? He can't do anything. Well, now that's up here, but in my emotional reality, all of a sudden it's different. And you see, the real avodas Hashem, the real work is feeling it, being margish it, making it real where I take that intellectual understanding and I work on it, work on it, work on it, until emotionally I feel it. And if you'd like to see an illustration of exactly this concept, I'll share with you an interesting idea. What is the difference between a philosophical question and an asoyan? Right? What's the difference between a philosophical question and an asoyan? So I'll explain to you. It's quite simple. When you break your leg... Hashem, I don't understand. A good person, a fine person. Hashem, I don't understand. Why, why did that terrible thing happen to that good person? Hashem, I don't understand. That is a philosophical question. But it's when I stub my toe. Ow, Hashem, why me? That's an asoyan. That's a test. You see, to sit there as an armchair philosopher and study other people's lives and explain why this and why that is, it's important, by the way. It's significant because it helps you recognize why Hashem does things, and if done with the proper spirit and the proper attitude, will allow you to better recognize Hashem's involvement in the world. But that's not where the action's at. The action is in my life, 
in my reality, in the thick and thin of things, when I get up in the morning, when I go to sleep at night, as I get involved with people and things, to recognize that Hashem is present, to recognize that Hashem runs the world, to recognize in a very real sense that Hashem is completely engaged and involved in the world. And I believe what this Rashi shares with us is a profound concept. You could be a tzaddik of Noah's proportion. Hashem will speak to you directly. A Navi, a Navi who's 600 years of age, and a Navi who spent not decades, but centuries, working and working, growing and growing, and being on a level that there could be a machlokas in the Gemara, whether in the generation of Avram, he'd be greater than Avram, similar to Avram, right up there. And yet, be mamin and ain't mamin. Believe in up. How could he not believe? How is it possible? He was teaching it. And he was building it. He was arguing with people for 120 years. The answer is, he intellectually understood it. Shem promised it. And he engaged in it. And he was totally involved. Intellectually, he got it 100%. But in the operating reality, he might have been 80%, great tzaddik, way, way, miles and miles above anyone we've ever met. But 80% is not 100%. And it wasn't until the waters forced him into the teva because he was mamin ve'eno mamin. And that's the reality of life. Our job in life is to grow, to change. First, working on the intellectual. The intellectual is understanding that Hashem is really, really engaged in every activity under the sun. And understanding that everything that Hashem does is for the best, whether I recognize it now, whether I don't, whether it's good for me now or good for me in the world to come. But that area called the intellectual work is something you have to do. And it's very easy when you're looking at other people's lives. And by the way, even your own life, it's not that difficult when you study your own life from a distance to do that work. The challenge is when you're in the thick and thin of things. You see, when you're engaged in living, that's the real test of the Munah. That's the real test to be tochen. That's the real test to see how much you've grown, not in the intellectual sense, but in the getting it sense. And ultimately, that is the work. Hashem gives us the tools, the opportunity of life, and our job is to take our intellectual understandings and use them, to use the mitzvahs, use learning Torah, use all of the spiritual tools that Hashem gave us to grow, and at the end of the day, to reach as much as we can, to recognize Hashem, understand Hashem, and see Hashem's active role in our life.